What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And let's start with some golf talk, John. Uh, Phil Mickelson became the oldest golfer to win a major over the weekend and was the talk of the golf world for about 12 hours until the video of Brooks Kepka rolling his eyes at Bryson DeChambeau went viral. Uh, two <laughs> questions for you, John, as our resident golf expert. One. Are you team Brooks or team Bryson? Uh, And two, is it just me or did the Jack Nicklaus who won the Masters at 46 look at least 10 years older than the Phil Mickelson who won the PGA last weekend? (laughs) Yeah, those are both good ones. Um, First, I'll say, you know, Bryson is what I would call an eccentric genius. I mean, really, he majored in physics at SMU after all. Um, All of his irons, including his wedges, are exactly the same length, which, of course, is not how golf works. A four iron is supposed to be a lot longer than a nine iron and so on. And that's how golf has worked for at least 100 years. And while Bryson is the reigning U.S. Open champion, nobody else is. So I guess that's okay. Uh, Bryson also is oblivious. You know, last year he tried to get a free drop because he claimed there were red ants in the area of his ball. And, of course, this qualified under the rules as a dangerous animal, and therefore he got a, a, a drop away from that area. You know, and I was a golfer who once hit a 100-yard wedge shot over a body of water down at Myrtle Beach while keeping one eye on the hopefully snoozing large alligator nearby. I'm going to pass on the red ant angle, um, and the rules officials did too. And I actually had some money on Kepka at plus 900 after round one. Uh, he's what I call an alpha male, and what you justify me question as to whether there's ever been an actual alpha male golfer compared to other sports. <laughs> you know, hockey, not so much football, boxing, mixed martial arts, probably not. But that's what I call him. Uh, yet all that, I even with the money on it, I, of course I rooted for Phil, partly because mm. I didn't have much money at stake, but also mainly because Phil is such a delightful person, and I've met him a number of times. You know, I understand why Bryson drives Brooks crazy, but Brooks should realize that Bryson knows not what he does. This sounds like a reality show now. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> oh, by the way, check that. Knows not what he does. Bryson must have found out by Wednesday when he tweeted a Bro- to Brooks, uh, it's nice to be living rent free inside your head. Right. Nice. Uh, not to Phil and Jack versus Phil. Yeah. I mean, Jack did give off that vibe in 1986 of last legs, right, which made it that much more exciting. And the same was true of Tom Watson's preposterous bid to win the British Open for the sixth time at age 59 a dozen years ago. 59. You know, in both cases, you knew this was it. So Watson's bogey on that 72nd hole led to a superfluous and hopeless playoff. It was as heartbreaking as Jack's win was exhilarating. Now, Phil was not a paragon of fitness in his younger years, but he obviously rebuilt himself in the past decade. So he not only looks a lot younger than Jack did at that 46 and he's 50, you know, the fear of if not today, never again, it wasn't quite as palpable on Sunday. So as much as I enjoyed it, I felt like I had everything at stake watching Jack in 86 and Watson in 2009. And this one was like, you know what? Phil's got a shot next month at the U S open. 
Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, well, as you know, uh, I watched uh, two entire holes of golf last weekend, uh, wanting a glimpse of history, although unfortunately yeah. there was very little drama on those final two holes, other other than the threat of Mickelson getting crushed amid a mosh pit of <laughs> golf fans. Um, but uh, after I watched, uh, t- getting to, to your alpha male sport comparison thing, uh, I took to Twitter with what I knew would be absolute catnip for my boxing fan followers. I tweeted uh-huh. Bernard Hopkins, who was 49 years old and changed the last time he successfully defended a boxing world title against a kid <laughs> half his age, seeing the sports world freaking out about Phil Mickelson. And I put a photo of Bernard making an almost Kepka-esque eye roll face. Uh, and it got a couple hundred likes, which which uh-huh. counts as going viral by my Twitter standards. That's fair. Yeah. I can never go wrong playing to my boxing audience with reminders that boxers make uh, other athletes look soft. But yeah, looking at looking at Mickelson, he's very tan. He's not bald. Uh, he's not any fatter than he ever was. As you said, maybe he's in better shape than he than he used to be. So yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, while it was a, a great comeback story in terms of a guy people had kind of written off winning a major, um, like I think the debate with Mickelson going into a lot of these tournaments is whether to bet him to, to make the cut or miss the cut. Yeah. Um, it, it just... I didn't feel like I was watching an old man win. Whereas, uh, as you said, with Nicholas in 86, you knew it was an old man turning back the clock or Jimmy Connors, 91 or George Foreman with his big gut or Bernard Hopkins with his gray beard. I I think Phil needs to look the part better to get maximum old guy underdog drama out of it. Yeah. I mean, the thing about Watson in 2009 is that like everyone knew that was impossible. Think about it. 59 years old. It's just Mm -hmm. impossible. And Everyone's waiting to see how far he could go because, like, Jack right. Nicholas contended again in the Masters uh, in his fifties uh, into like midday Saturday, and it was kind of like, how how far along can we get? You know, can we get through two rounds? Can we get through almost three rounds? I mean, uh, Bernard Langer is over sixty, and he's uh, still occasionally in that mix. You know, right. he's done by early Sunday, but basically, but but still, it's fun to see how far they can go. And with Watson, it was like. He's like, he's on the back nine. He's still leading. You know, he's got five holes to go. He's got two holes to go. The last hole, you figure that tee shot is a disaster. Good tee shot. Second shot, nice shot. Just over the green. Kind of a tricky little lie. Downhill, but... He just has to make the par get up and down, and the chip goes a little bit too far past, like five, six feet. But if he makes this, he still does it. It's impossible. And then he missed the putt, and it was just brutal. Because, I mean, the playoff was a complete waste of time. There was yeah. He shouldn't even bother showing up at the 73rd <laughs> tee. <laughs> And he lost. Right. All right. That, that's enough golf talk for now. Yeah. Uh, okay. That, that's all I can handle. Uh, th- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 144 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 143 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We are doing the Kepka eye roll at all of you who haven't yet given us a five-star rating. So get on yeah. that. Very nice. Uh, coming up a later, later in the show, we're going to be joined by Johnny Ayers, uh, the CEO of SoCure. That's a company that provides identity verification online and recently began doing so for DraftKings. We're going to ask Johnny about that partnership with DraftKings, how online gaming is and isn't like other industries SoCure works in, and how identity verification plays into responsible gambling. But first, it's been a busy week in the world of gambling, so let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Our first story is one that hits close to home for us as veteran journalists. It's the latest sportsbook partnership deal, but it's not with a team or a league or a stadium or even a TV network. It's with the Associated Press. 
AP announced Tuesday that FanDuel will be the exclusive odds provider for the global news service. And while financial terms were not revealed, this is clearly a privilege FanDuel is paying for. And what it's buying is the presence of the FanDuel name in any article in which it makes sense to mention sports betting odds. On the one hand, it's not that different from ESPN entering into a similar deal with Caesars or DraftKings purchasing VEASAN. On the other hand, the AP has been around since 1846 and as a real old school journalistic outlet should be able to compare odds from multiple sports books when relevant. So what do you think, John? Does this bother you as a longtime newspaper guy? And is whatever negative impact worth it for the positive impact of AP never quoting offshore odds anymore? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly my sentiment right there. I mean, yeah, it is silly for AP to even sign this deal and to not reference other legal books and their stories. But let's face it, AP, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and every major outlet has been pimping for illegal offshore books for years. Uh, sure, they usually aren't even aware of it, but we're in a line of work where accuracy is all kind of important. And why would you be touting an illegal site? It's very strange, but it happens all the time and it still does. So I would not be shocked if the bulk of the mainstream media starts lazily mirroring AP and starts just quoting FanDuel lines instead of DraftKings or BetMGM or any of the other large legal ones. Um, you know, that's a value added that I wonder if AP basically realized in making this deal that, that uh, for damn sure FanDuel knows it. Uh, and if companies that rhyme would say Lovada won't get free publicity anymore, <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the value for FanDuel, but before I get into any opinions I might have about AP's side of this, yeah, I'll say that this certainly makes all the sense in the world for FanDuel. Now, I don't know what they paid. They might have overpaid. Yeah. Who knows? But this is valuable. This is great advertising, and it's like subtle, effective advertising. It's like advertorial mm -hmm. in a sense uh, that helps establish them to casual sports betting types as the authority. AP has huge reach. Their articles get picked up all over. So can't possibly knock FanDuel for this. This, this is smart deal making. Um, yeah. As for AP, look, everybody has to do what they have to do to survive financially in the modern media sphere. Um, we've all sold out to some degree. Uh, you and I work for an affiliate site. Uh, we're professionals. Uh, we're better than 99% of other affiliates, I think. But we're a teeny bit compromised at times. Um, I remember I was very idealistic when I was an editor for the boxing magazines at the start of my career, but as time has gone on, I've taken part in advertorial, I've worked with a conflict of interest for media outlets like HBO, Showtime, ESPN, I put links in our articles leading to the sportsbook signup pages. It's not the purest journalism. Um, so with all that said, I find this mildly depressing coming from AP. Um, it just feels like they should be above this level of sellout, even though I get why they aren't. You know, these these are the modern times. You do what you got to do. But I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little deflated by this. Um, the best service you can do journalistically is present your readers with all available odds. Um, but again, it is useful as a strike against free advertising for the offshores, at least. Uh, yeah, I got to say, I... Uh... I'm very naive, but I just signed up like, uh, here's my brand. Here's what I do. If you like what I do, I'll do that for you, uh, you know, at usbets.com. And they said, just do that. And that's, uh, that's good with me. That's why I'm not management, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Moving on to our second news story. Uh, let's combine a whole bunch of quick news items on states, uh, or in one case, a country, uh, advancing sports betting legislation uh, in Florida. 
Governor Ron DeSantis signed the new gaming compact that theoretically brings sports betting to the state, although, as we've discussed, there will be legal challenges. In Connecticut, the Senate approved the new gaming bill, so it now heads to the governor. But language in their threatening daily fantasy sports has gotten some attention and has the industry feeling a little less encouraged about the whole package. The Department of the Interior approved the Arizona Gaming Compact, so rules should be revealed in mid-June and sports betting could be up and running by the fall. In Nebraska, lawmakers sent a bill for retail betting only to the governor, uh, and it also bans in-state college betting. Uh, In Louisiana, a framework for sports betting passed committee, and the state is on track for a possible fall launch. And our neighbors to the north, Canada, moves a step closer when their single-game betting bill passed through the second of three required readings in the Senate. Uh, Lots to digest there, John. What stands out to you, and are you at all surprised by how much legislative news there's been in 2021 so far. Uh, yeah, I'll throw some nuggets at you. Um, we're still in the gold rush phase with sports betting, so I'm not surprised there. You know, the difference between this and the casino national rollout is that in both cases, Nevada was decades ahead. But regarding casinos, New Jersey was second in 1978. And for whatever reason, it took more than a decade before that gold rush began with a flurry of states legalizing. And guess what? States like Mississippi, Iowa, Illinois, they got in early in both cases. Uh, elsewhere, I think Canada's there, and they're there this year. I don't think there's anything left there. Um, mm-hmm. Retail only, no Cornhusker game bets in Nebraska. That's pretty much the requisite gateway drug for those residents that they need. I think um, they'll get all the way there in a few years, but they're kind of timid. So it's like, well, if we can't bet legal in Nebraska games, there's not a whole lot going on <laughs> in the wagering world, but the world won't come to an end there either, so, th- so they'll be fine. Uh, Louisiana, I mean, the smart money usually is on the over for any claim deadline there. Um, they're not going to make it uh, in time. Arizona is all set, I think, also. Nothing more to see there, just like Canada. Connecticut, yeah. The daily fantasy sports thing is weird. I mean, I haven't heard about some lawmaker who is as obsessed with this as the, like the late billionaire casino mogul Sheldon Adelson was against online casino gaming, right? I mean, some lobbyists clearly slip one past the goalie, and I hear that the two DFS behemoths are putting in the work to try and avoid even a temporary hiccup there. So I think that gets worked around, but it was strange. And finally, Florida, yeah. I mean, I'm not waiting for Godot, but I am waiting for any legal expert to poke a hole in our recent guest, Daniel Wallach's analysis that shows there's almost zero chance of the Seminole tribe getting mobile betting statewide from this arrangement. Uh, the first federal judge who reviews it will knock that section out of the state law uh, because the the uh, federal uh, law regarding tribes and what kind of gambling they can do spells out you can't do that mobile. Uh, and Floridians will have to go to a Seminole casino to make their legal wagers. Yep, um, I, I agree. I haven't seen anything that makes me second guess uh, Daniel Wallach at all. I, it's just kind of a matter of, of when this uh, gets thrown off course in Florida. Um, I'll just weigh in quickly on the DFS thing, because um, I wrote an article Wednesday about it after speaking to Dan Bach, the founder and president of the Gamble on Five Timers Club, uh, and also to uh, Peter Schenke, uh, who's on the board of directors of the Fantasy Sports and Gaming Association. Mm-hmm. The point they both hammered home was that in Florida and Connecticut, these new laws to regulate DFS and other forms of real money fantasy were clearly written with no input from anyone in the fantasy industry. Uh, The Florida regs, which thankfully got pulled off the table, included a rule that any DFS contest had to cover at least five games and lineups had to feature players from four teams. It it just would be so incredibly limiting. and in Connecticut, and, and this is the one that might still be moving forward, it's going to kill smaller sites uh, as there will only be a handful of 
DFS operator licenses available in the state. And it's potentially going to sideline even the bigger sites for six months or more while they wait to get licensed. It's very frustrating because there are sensible DFS regulations out there in other states. Why reinvent the wheel now? Why not just copy and paste? I know you say that about with New Jersey sports betting a lot. Um, but with DFS, they most states kind of have copy and pasted. And, and these two are kind of out there freelancing. Um, I don't know if Connecticut will ditch these regs or not. Um, I would guess that, as you said, DraftKings and FanDuel are fighting pretty hard that they'll give in uh, and issue temporary licenses so that those sites don't have to take a, a, a hiatus throughout football season. But who knows? It, it's weird that sports betting is inching ever forward and, and suddenly DFS is taking a couple of steps backward. Yeah, I, I feel good in a way that I am now sort of sympathetic to the DFS companies. And I think that's because I'm I'm sticking with common sense, which was five years ago, the idea that, you know, risking a hundred dollars on your, uh, you know, entry fee to hopefully win $2,000 was not gambling from a common sense standpoint. I thought, I, I think that's what gambling is. You risk money. <laughs> right. And if it goes well for you, you win. I, I think that's what gambling is. And, but now, um, all of a sudden they're, they're getting kicked around. First of all, sports betting is legal in most States anyway. And if you went all these years allowing it, you know, why upset the apple carts? That's why I, I feel good about being sympathetic to them now. Cause it wasn't like I was against DFS in principle. It's just, I was trying to stick with common sense. And I think it was gambling five years ago. I think it's gambling now, but I don't see why these States have to suddenly, you know, shift things around. Just, it, it worked out, you know, fine for everybody. So just stick with it and leave DFS alone. Uh, all right. Our third and final story this week is about a one-time gamble on guest, uh, not a five-timer like Dan Bach, but a one-time gamble on guest who recently won big. Um, he's not the biggest winner we've ever had on the show. Uh, Jeopardy James certainly still has him beat and uh, maybe some of the other pro, uh, pro sports bettors and pro poker players we've had on uh, have him beat as well. But uh, Doug Kazarian, who was our interview subject on episode 56 uh, and is slightly better known as the host of ESPN's Daily Wager, scored big on the NFL draft a few weeks ago and started receiving media coverage for it this week. Doug won nearly $300,000, or perhaps he and an anonymous pro better he partnered with split that amount. It's not entirely clear to me from the reporting, but Doug won big betting on Tyson Campbell to be the first safety taken in the draft. The story of how this came to be is fascinating. Uh, Doug was interested in betting the under on Campbell's draft position when he noticed that MGM Books had him available in the first safety drafted markets, even though every other book had him listed correctly as a cornerback. He was not going to be the first cornerback taken, but it was conceivable that he'd be taken before any safeties. So Doug, seeing him priced at 100 to 1, headed over to Bellagio and avoided unwanted attention by betting at the kiosks and by making a series of small bets, $200 each. Uh, the price came down to 50 to one after he'd made a few wagers and he kept going until he had bet $3,500, returning $297,800 when Campbell, thanks to a handful of unexpected occurrences, got taken with the first pick of the second round before any other safeties. Uh, Bellagio resisted paying Doug at first, but eventually he was paid in full. Uh, so much to discuss here, John. Uh, 
do you think there's any chance if the better isn't an ESPN personality, he has a harder time getting paid on a house mistake? Um, I saw a bit of unsupported speculation that Doug was just betting as a front for the unnamed pro better because he'd have an easier time getting paid. Do you think that's possible? And do you think ESPN cares if one of their employees is winning big in this way and getting publicity out of it? Yeah, now that you mention it, the first thing that's occurring to me is um, Doug risked $3,500 on a long shot. Um, those of us who don't uh, <laughs> swim in such uh, deep waters, uh, wow, I can't even imagine. Um, so he's won a lot of those and he's lost a lot of those, and this is a huge win. Mm-hmm. So good for him. But, you know, I think the best, two, the best two ways to get rich on sports betting are either put in a lot of time and effort uh, or to know somebody, right? And I think Doug checked off both boxes here. Now, in the UK, I think I know that this bet is canceled no matter who it is. That's the culture of betting across the pond. And in Jersey, I think I know that this bet gets paid, whether the book likes it or not. Right. In Vegas, that's a tough one. I'd like to think that identity of better doesn't matter, but uh, I don't know. And finally, does ESPN love, like, or not like this story? I think they like it. Doug's an engaging personality with a strong niche fan base and 34,000 followers. And I'm one of only 2,000 he follows, and I assume you're another, Eric. <laughs> Given that his specific area of expertise is gambling, I think his fans enjoyed seeing him win. And they realized that, no, he couldn't slip in a hint either on the show or on Twitter. He's like that horse racing well who, who uh, is hoping that New Jersey next week uh, passes the fixed odds bill. Because uh, if he bets 50 grand on a midsize race, his four to one that he sees, he himself turns it into two to one. And obviously, you know, this would be the same situation here. If he mentioned it, even just on Twitter to that many followers he's gonna uh uh you know move it uh, again yeah. now that won't affect his bet because it's a sports bet but the the people he tips off are not going to get the numbers he got you know one minute after he tweets it so he can't really give them the great number that he had yeah, so I'm not so sure that ESPN likes this more than dislikes it. Uh, I'll just note that ESPN hasn't covered this story, and you got to figure David Purdom would love to write about this. Um, mm. So that says to me they probably don't think it's a great look. Um, I did hear Doug talk about it briefly on his podcast, but otherwise mm. it's been external coverage only and, and not a ton of it. Um you know, there's nothing wrong, certainly, with Doug being a sports better in his spare time. And and actually, if he is winning big and, and getting covered doing so, it lends some legitimacy to all the other picks he makes on the air. Um, but I just, I think the sort of sneaky way he went about this, um, and it's, again, it's totally legal. Good for him. Uh, that's what MGM and Bellagio get for screwing up. Uh, th- this wasn't some kind of tech glitch. I think he absolutely should be paid every penny, uh, but, but, but the sneakiness of it, the way it feels kind of like an advantage play. I get that ESPN wouldn't think that's a great look. Um, I, I, it feels to me like they probably after the first story or two came out kind of said, all right, let's uh, let's try to sweep this under the rug and, and not shine a spotlight on it. Um, I wonder to what extent, heads rolled at MGM because um, this is a mistake that, that shouldn't happen. Uh, although I get why it would. Um, you have a million different NFL draft markets. It's hard to triple check them all. And especially the deeper you go into the draft, like this wasn't a top 10 or 15 kind of guy getting drafted. The deeper you go, the more exploitable it becomes. Um, like as a boxing better, the two so- times I've seen boxing lines that jumped out at me, uh, as being way off, they were undercard fights. Um, I'm not going to find a line that's way off on a heavyweight championship fight, but you know, the opening bout of a minor card 
I found a guy who should have been even money or possibly a small favorite listed as a three to one dog. Nobody got fired, I'm sure, because I bet it for like 20 bucks to win 60. Um, <laughs> when Doug Kazarian wins 300 grand, maybe somebody does get fired. I'm, I'm not sure. But it's a great story. Uh, it's, it's always fun when somebody beats the casino by outsmarting them. Um, you know, blackjack card counting scenes in movies are always fun to watch. And I could see this as a good movie scene, you know, Doug uh, knowing a payout over 25 grand triggers alarms. So he's Mm. betting 200 at a time. He's waiting. He's going to a different kiosk and so forth. That's a fun movie scene right there. Uh, Yeah. And I I think uh, I think ESPN wins on both levels. Right. So uh, I get your point. And yet I don't think the story really made it into the general sports audience nationally. So. The, the gambling sector, the little niche that we have, everybody knows about it. We're talking about it. We're intrigued by it. And then, you know, you're right. Maybe if, if the entire, you know, sports uh, fan universe knows about it, they might find it a little weird, but I don't think they heard about it, which partly because, as you say, I guess ESPN didn't promote it so much. So I, I think ESPN got a win on both sides. They they got what they what they would want in the gambling sphere. And then uh, it didn't get that mainstream that everybody's talking about it on, you know, CNN or something. Right. And this, the, the, the way this went down uh, also just makes me wonder if, you know, maybe, maybe Pennsylvania has it right by deciding not to allow draft betting. Um, It's just what it's a, a market that, can certainly be a little dangerous for the books. Um, and we heard a lot of stories of, of uh, sharp betters doing well on the NFL draft. It's, you know, it's mm-hmm. you're, you're betting based on sometimes you as the better being able to have superior information to what the book ha- has. And that's, you know, rarely true with an actual sporting event, but with mm-hmm. something like the draft, you can find edges uh, sometimes. And uh, I wonder, I don't, maybe it's just coincidence that Pennsylvania doesn't have it more because they, they don't like the not settled on the athletic field aspect of it. Uh, uh, It's not so much them like looking out for the books, but it does turn out that they're kind of inadvertently looking out for the books maybe in Pennsylvania by not uh, allowing them to offer these markets. Well, uh, we've written a couple of stories this week about uh, the fact that Pennsylvania's breaking in the maximum amount of tax dollars from gambling and making sure they do that. And this is sort of another way of doing that, right? I mean, the, so New Jersey has a different philosophy and they don't get as much tax revenue. And they also are trying to give the consumer every option they want that's practical with sports betting. And Pennsylvania is, is uh, upfront about not doing that. We want to make the most tax revenue. And right, if, if the draft doesn't look like a good uh, winner for us, sure thing, we're not going to allow it they're not wrong. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just a, a way of uh, uh, looking at the situation in New Jersey and other states are different. So, you know, more power to Pennsylvania. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the gamble on interview. The online gaming industry features its share of public-facing companies we're all very familiar with, like DraftKings, FanDuel, MGM, and so on. But there are also a lot of behind-the-scenes companies making the industry work, and one of those is SoCure, a company founded in 2012 that works to provide identity verification for online customers. Joining us now to talk about SoCure's role in online gaming and how this connects to responsible gambling is the company's CEO, Johnny Ayers. Johnny, welcome to Gamble On. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, John. Appreciate you guys having me. So let, let's start with the basics. 
what does SoCure do exactly when it provides identity verification for an online gaming operator? And what are the potential pitfalls of not having that extra level of identity verification for customers? So there's really two things that we help our, our, our clients and online gaming operators answer. Uh, one is, you know, is this a real identity? So like, does this identity exist? Uh, and then the second is, is this actually the identity in question for this particular application or transaction? Uh, to answer those two questions, we've built a end-to-end platform where we have uh, developed uh, feature engineering verification capabilities across every dimension of Eric. His email, his phone, his credit records, energy, insurance, device, location, uh, physical documents. Uh, and so in a, in a single service, we've really built a holistic view of Eric, which enables uh, 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 really any business on the internet to positively verify and, and quickly scale safely uh, new identities on their platform. And, and certainly in, a, in an industry growing as, as fast uh, as online gaming is, this is a, a critically important um, because if you don't do it well, uh, obviously you provide a poor customer experience to a lot of good, good consumers that want to come uh, a game or, or bet on your site. Uh, the, the, but of course, the flip side of that coin is if you just let everyone in, uh, you can potentially have a, a massive kind of money laundering uh, or fraud risk on your hands where you could have people uh, either bots or just nefarious actors transacting on a, a platform that you know really is meant to 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 have trust between different counterparties that are are betting or, or gaming on that application. Right, and 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 how important is the the speed of the verification process? I assume it's very important to your to your clients not to have any friction created there. Absolutely. I mean, our, our, like our core KYC and AML service, you're talking a couple of hundred milliseconds. So like, okay. you know, it's, 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 it's faster than, you know, you can basically blink an eye. <laughs> um, certainly there's, you know, there's some, some, some uh, things that can take a couple of seconds. Like if you're having to upload a, you know, driver's license or a passport, if you're requiring some type of selfie, um, you know, different services has, have different level of authentication. Um, right, whether it just be a you know an email verification or a phone verification, up through like verifying every element of the identity. Uh, maybe if they're transacting in larger dollar amounts, um, and there you know you could be a couple of hundred millis to a couple of seconds. But um, you know in the digital world, you're still talking real time versus uh, uh, you know obviously the equivalent of of doing this in person, which could take you know minutes or hours if you you know had to fly somewhere to go game. Yeah, you know, uh, we've been uh, heartened, uh, Johnny, recently about how many of the large uh, gaming operators are uh, showing an interest in responsible gambling and kind of recognition that. And obviously, Europe's had some issues with this where uh, you can get a short term game uh, gain by, you know, wiping somebody out. But it's not only unethical, but uh, it's not even good business practice because uh, that leads that can lead to a lot of resentment, a lot of concerns. You could have um, lawmakers want to step in. And so uh, for a variety of reasons, they are interested in that. So what, 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 are you, what is your company able to do to help uh, these companies make sure that they're, uh, they're not, uh, as I say, emptying somebody's bankroll rather than just having them, you know, spend a few uh, uh, discretionary dollars? Yes. So I think the, the first thing that, you know, Secure has spent a huge amount of time and effort and energy and money uh, solving, right, is the ability to verify the largest number of good people. Um, and making sure that the identities that are coming through the front door um, are, in fact, who they say they are. 
So that in, in itself is a massive challenge, right? Of keeping bots, keeping people that are purposely trying to, 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 to uh, uh, commit fraud out of the platform. The second part is around how do you use upfront risk signals, uh, behavioral signals, uh, elements about an identity to determine operational controls and how you should think about uh, funds availability. Um, have you ever seen this person before? Have you seen them on other, tra- you know, uh, other gaming platforms before? Um, to try to start to build some operational controls so that you can start to build uh, an almost kind of like customer risk rating, if you will, of, you know, hey, it's normal for John to spend, you know, X amount of dollars because he makes, you know, Y amount of income or, hey, we actually see this kind of continual bet pattern versus like one big kind of massive standard deviation, um, you know, where he went big one Sunday. Uh, and so we use a lot of uh, kind of our upfront risk signals to help, whether it be financial institutions or, or gaming operators in, in this case, uh, build operational controls for how to write some rules around 30, 60, 90, 120, as they start to learn what is a, a, a kind of standard deviation or normal pattern of a particular gamer. All right. So then I guess what I'm thinking about is so that the operator is able to sort of send an email or a text or whatever to uh, to that gambler and sort of say almost like a wake up call, say, you know, we just want to make sure you're comfortable with this or is this something you can afford or is that kind of the way is that the result of what uh, your information gives them? Uh, it gives them the ability to to determine those controls themselves. Right. It, it helps them. Uh, it may be, hey, they just put a hard cap on it. Right, because they they just don't they they, they don't want the risk. Uh, it may be what you alluded to, which is like there's some step up, there's some prompt, there's uh, you know some opt in to this uh, decision in an active way. But for us, right, we're we're helping them determine their risk um, and and kind of split uh, you know what is what is a very low risk versus a medium risk versus a high risk, and then how they build their controls. Right, maybe subjective to the game and the limits, right? And, and that particular user. Um, we're really meant to be an input into to their decision versus, uh, you know, secure driving that type of decision for them. So I, I know that you guys operate in, in numerous industries, uh, banking, healthcare, insurance, and so on. Um, I'm wondering in what ways is online ga- gaming unique uh, in terms of the identity verification measures that you have to take. Uh, you just talked about uh, one topic there that John was asking about responsible gambling. That's obviously separate from a lot of the other things you do, but I'm curious if there are other ways and is the fact that online gaming laws vary from state to state and thus geolocation is involved. Is that a big complication in what you do? Great question. Uh, you know, everyone's a snowflake. Everyone's unique. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, but, but uh, like, so, so I'll kind of speak to the similarities first and then I'll kind of speak to some of the differences. So, so you know, one of the reasons we're, we're, we're having such success in the online gaming industry is, it, is it's actually very similar to other verticals, right? Like it's, it's Johnny, it's Eric, it's John. Like we're transacting at a bank, we're buying phones, right? We're trading, uh, you know, in, a, in a, an investing application, we're filing for state or federal services, right? We all just filed our taxes. Like it's the same consumer operating in a digital channel. Um, and so it's a pretty similar problem across all verticals, right? You're trying to verify this is actually John sitting behind this mobile device, right? Without asking him a thousand questions or forcing him to go in person, right? So like the prompt of the problem is actually identical and it's the same consumer sitting behind it. 
and what what we found in financial services where we really ha- you know ha- had made our beachhead initially um, you know we have three of the top five banks we have seven of the top ten issuers we have 150 plus of the most well known uh, fintechs like Chime Varo Stash Public you know big big names uh, where we've been their core KYC fraud AML provider uh, and when we looked across where were there similar problems where was there similar volume, risk, regulatory requirements. Um, we saw online gaming as, a, as an, an obvious parallel uh, to financial services. And so uh, those would be the similarities, uh, you know, similar regs, similar verification requirements, uh, and, and obviously a similar customer base. The differences would be, um, you know, you have some nuances where uh, maybe they do potentially less fraud and authentication checks up front and do them more on the back end where there's a disbursement. Mm-hmm. Now this is evolving. Uh, uh, but that's been one of the differences that we've seen is there's a lot of heavier checks at the time of disbursement relative to, to sometimes at, at the front door. Um, there's, there's obviously uh, uh, geolocation requirements that are unique to gaming that you don't see um, right, the OCC covers nationally chartered banks. Right, the FDIC is state by state, um, and so uh, you would see a, a kind of similar pattern there, where uh, I believe we're at 23 states. Some some form of online gaming is legal. Um, each state will have their own requirements. Each state may have their own decisioning scorecard, um, and so th- there's some nuance there. Uh, and then obviously, like if I have one foot in New York and one foot in New Jersey. Um, right. It may be which, you know, which, which foot I'm, you know, which hand I'm holding my phone in like that doesn't exist in, 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 you know, in, in any other vertical that I know of maybe cannabis. Um, right. Uh, but so that type of like geolocation, uh, uh, the decision logic per state, the regs per state, uh, and then, you know, potentially doing more at disbursement than upfront. Those would be some of the, um, some of the most immediate things that I can think of that are, that are differing. Uh, but for the most part, right, they want to know that this is actually Eric. Uh, they have KYC requirements. They have AML requirements. Um, and, um, you know, they want to make decisions and accurate decisions very, very, very quickly, which, which we see to be a, a really tight parallel to what we've been doing in financial services for the last eight plus years. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the extra checks at the point of disbursement, because um, that's actually something we've... I forget if we've talked about it on the podcast at all. We've certainly written about it a little bit on the site that that can be a bit of a turnoff to customers uh, that, hey, why did they not look so hard into who I am when I deposited money, but now that I want to take money out, now they're making me jump through a couple of extra hoops. I'm wondering, is that something that you've come up against that just from a um, sort of customer perception perspective that that could be at all problematic to do it that way? Um, look, I mean, I think we, we, we provide services, you know, we have a modularized architecture. So clients, you know, our, our customers, the operators can buy just an email risk score, just a phone verification, just physical document. Like we have the ability to solve independent problems, right? Whether it be password resets, an account change, or if they want to kind of bundle everything together at new account or disbursement, like our technology is very flexible. And so we're really kind of working with them to consult on, hey, what problem are you trying to solve? Here's how you use our solutions to solve it. Um, uh, but we're not doing in uh, consumer interviews 
of how they feel about uh, new account versus disbursement. Uh, uh, not at the, not at this point, um, you know, but, but yeah, that, 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 that is something that has been unique that we, we haven't seen. Um, uh, I, but I think what, what's occurring to some of the regulators are saying, Hey, I want to see more, uh, uh, binding of the identity to the device, right? I, w- I want you to be able to tie the session to this identity, right? I want you to be able to tie this location, uh, right. Of the IP of the device to this individual, um, uh, you know, and so we, we are seeing, we are seeing that evolve, um, it, you know, in, in our work with, with a number of the gaming operators is they are starting to be like, Hey, we should probably look to do more upfront. Um, and I don't know if it's from customer friction. I don't know if it's pressure from the regulators, but again, like we're, we're developing solutions. And so when they're ready to implement those solutions, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll happily be there to help. Okay. Yeah, John, I wanted to ask about you a new deal with DraftKings. And uh, I guess I'm learning from this conversation that you're in so many sectors. And I imagine there's kind of a, a turning point each time when you, you first get in the into that other sector with a major player. And then I guess, uh, I don't know if proof of concept is the right word, but um, other people in the industry can see how it works. And then, uh, so, uh, you know, reading between the lines of that, I, I take it uh, this could be the start of something big in the in this sector too? Uh, yeah, so I mean, we we've been in the gaming industry for, for about a year now, uh, and so not not all of them are public. Certainly, this one's public. Uh, I think next next week we actually have another big release um, from a, a big uh, a player uh, in 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 the gaming space and in the banking space that supports the gaming industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, when we we've been successful, it, it's a um, you know the the ability to verify a larger number of customers right? While either keeping your risk flat or reducing your risk is a tremendously valuable proposition, um, right? And, and when these gaming operators are racing to be the first in a state, right? Racing for customer acquisition in that new state, they're looking for, um, you know, as many advantages as they can. Um, and so, you know, I think that this was touched on in our release, which is, you know, DraftKings is excited to see Secure's ability to help them verify a larger number of customers, uh, you know, with some of their solutions that are either 18 plus or 21 plus historically with, with legacy solutions, this is a hard audience to verify. They don't have credit histories. They may be on their parents' family plan. They may or may not, you know, have utility or energy records. Like there's just not a lot of data on them. And so this has been a place where we have been tremendously successful and helping our customers verify the younger audiences, the more thin file. Um, uh, you know, we, we were issued recently a, a kind of patent on, on how we do kind of clustering related to matching disparate pieces of data. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, we're, we're really excited uh, about our success and traction thus far. Obviously, we're very excited about the partnership and the ability to support DraftKings uh, as they continue to to kind of expand and and grow uh, uh, in, in in their state work across the country, and uh, yeah, we're very excited to to see how we're able to support the broader gaming industry going forward. As as I think, um, not only is KYC and AML paramount to uh, safe transactions for money movement on the internet, but I think in an industry that's growing so fast being able to provide solutions and tooling to help them actually grow faster uh, and do so safely at actually a lower acquisition cost is a, is a fun spot to be in. And, and I think that's probably why some of these folks are, 
are pretty excited to partner with SoCure as well. All right. Fascinating stuff. Uh, very informative. Uh, great to talk to you, Johnny. And uh, thanks so much for, for coming on Gamble On. And uh, I uh, expect we'll be hearing the name SoCure quite a bit in, in our uh, sector going forward. Absolutely. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate the time. And, uh, you know, it's a really tight knit community here. Uh, and so, you know, we've been welcomed with open arms and, and are really excited to, to be a partner here and continue to make big investments to, to help the broader industry uh, drive forward safely. So thank you, guys. All right. Thanks, Johnny. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. Just like Phil Mickelson, John and I are a couple of middle-aged dudes who you should never count out. Uh, We we didn't win quite as much money as Phil last week, uh, but we did pretty well for ourselves. And perhaps we're on the comeback trail, uh, staying on the Mickelson theme and starting with the PGA Championship. uh, John had $10 on Patrick Reed to win. No good there. But he had $50 on Reed for the top 20, which earned a two-thirds chop and returned $79. Plus, he had Joaquin Neiman for the top 40, which produced a small profit of $36. So that adds up to a $65 win on golf. We also got a nice win with my season-long bet on the Wizards to make the playoffs. They crushed the Pacers in the final Eastern Conference play-in game to earn us $100. And my boxing bet on Josh Taylor came through. He won a close but clear-cut decision, $80 profit there. The only loss was on the Maple Leafs to win game one by at least two goals. Uh, they've won the other three games since, yes, uh, two, two of them by two or more, uh, yeah. but not that opener. So uh, we lost $50 there. Uh, all told, we won $195 on the week. So we're down now by $1,180, and we have $1,813 on hold in futures bets, uh, many of them shaping up nicely, leaving us with $7,007 available to bet with. And you're up first, John. Well, you know, I'm feeling better about my golf picks of late, I'm either winning or barely losing. And you'll be relieved to know, Eric, that I have maintained my uh, 28-week golf pool lead after week 15 being the PGA and double money. Uh, there's a third rival now who also jumped up in my grill, but, uh, you know, I'm hanging on so far. Okay. Now, all okay. four of my pool picks this week went out early uh, this morning, so I'll shift to the afternoon tee times and focus on those. Um, let's put it this way with three veteran values. Uh, it's I'm phenom free this week for once. And it's a Texas tournament that rewards age and course experience more than being a phenom. So 50 on Gary Woodland and plus 200 for top 20. Uh, he was ninth at this event last year and he's now healthy. So I like that number. Uh, 30 more on Charlie Hoffman plus 175 for a top 20 as well. And then 20 on Sergio Garcia plus 550 because this is a plus it's a top 10, not a top 20. Um, not everyone knows that Sergio has lived in Texas for several years. So this is a home game for him. All righty. Um, so you started with golf and I'm starting with boxing. Uh, I was looking at the boxing odds and I see a little value in three different spots this weekend. So you just made three golf bets. I'm going to make three not too huge boxing wagers. Okay. Um, first, the main event of Saturday night's Showtime triple header. Future Hall of Famer Nonito Donaire is as much as a plus 200 underdog versus Nordin Ubali. I think it's close to a pick'em fight. So let's put $50 on Nonito to win 100 Then on a separate card, undefeated up-and-comer Devin Haney takes on veteran former title holder Jorge Linares. Uh, Linares is skilled and dangerous, but he has no chin, and he cuts easily, and he's getting old. I think Haney by stoppage is clearly the pick here. 
Uh, and I found that uh, Haney by KO, TKO, or disqualification at minus 188. So for that, let's bet $94 to win 50. And last one in the middle bout of the Showtime triple header, a good evenly matched junior welterweight fight between two undefeated guys, Subriel Matias versus Batir Jukambayev. I make Matias a slight favorite. The books have him as a slight underdog, plus 110. So let's bet $50 to win 55 on Matias. Yeah, I think at least one of those names is not real, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I think you're bluffing, but I, I don't know exactly which one is the fake one. So I'm going to have to just accept all those names. Um, <laughs> There's going to be a quiz next week. You have to pronounce <laughs> them all. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, good news here on the uh, you don't bet the team, you bet the number front. I had figured that the Knicks, in spite of only salvaging a split of their playoff series versus the Hawks at home in the first two games, would still be an unjustified favorite. And I just have to go against them. But actually, I'm getting the Knicks uh, for 50 at the plus 118 price. And that will make at least one of our colleagues happier. <laughs> so that's to win the, the series from here. On yes, to win the series. Plus okay. Um, yes, that will make at least one of our colleagues happy. <laughs> as long as you didn't just jinx them, uh, then, then that will make him very unhappy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We're, we are coolers of late. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for my second bet, I thought about making a French open bet. Um, my gut tells me Rafael Nadal, who I've bet on successfully the last two years, my gut tells me he's ready to fall. And I was thinking about uh, Tsitsipas at plus 700 for the semi-long shot bet to win the tournament. But I checked in with Adam Small, who follows tennis much more closely than I do. And he's insistent that Nadal is going to win again. So I'm backing down. Um, instead, I'll make an NBA bet. Instead of going with a Thursday night game, as I often do, I'm targeting a Friday game uh, since they have the odds up early for these playoff games. The Mavs are leading the Clippers two games to none as they head home to Dallas. And I get that it's a must win for the Clippers. And on paper, they have more talent. But it also feels like the Clips are just a team where the pieces don't fit and they have no chemistry and they're just about ready to fold. And Luca is playing out of his mind and will only rise to the occasion more with the home crowd behind him. To my eyes, Dallas is a slight favorite to win this game. The sports books have them as an underdog. Uh, and I, I get why, but I disagree with it. They're as high as plus 115 on the money line. So let's bet $100 to win 115 on the Mavs taking game three on Friday night. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Johnny Ayers. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And with that, John, please take us out. Well, Eric, uh, you know, Bob Dylan turned 80 on Monday, and I like to refer to him as the opening act for Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. in 1963, which he was. Uh, and for people under 40 in particular, it seems impossible to most of them that someone from a million years ago could still be around all these years <laughs> later. And I have a feeling he'll be touring again this fall. Uh, but this is Gamble On, so let's focus on Dylan's gambling songs. Uh, the most well-known is Lily, Rosemary, and the Jack of Hearts from the iconic mid-'70s Dylan album Blood on the Tracks. Uh, wonderful, rambling song. And there's also Huck's tune, and even Dylan's fans likely have to Google that one, Huck's tune, uh, possessive there. Uh, but there also is Rambling Gambling Willie from 1962, which I was delighted to just discover yesterday, originated from an ancient folk song called Brennan on the Moor, which as it happens, we all dance to at my wedding. <laughs> so uh, a little excerpt. Uh, it was late one evening during a poker game. A man lost all his money. He said Willie was to blame. He shot poor Willie through the head, which was a tragic fate. When Willie's cards fell on the floor, yeah, they were aces backed with eights. 
So all you roving gamblers, wherever you might be, the moral of the story is very plain to see. Make your money while you can, before you have to stop. For when you pull that dead man's hand, your gambling days are up. And with that, until next time, gamble on, everybody. Everybody.